morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. I'm joined for the Hillsdale Dialogue, as I am most weeks, by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And this is a special week. We're not looking backwards a long way. We're looking backwards to Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We don't much care about Thursday when witnesses were up. We care about when Judge Amy Coney Barrett appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's sort of like um, a World Series for people who care about the Constitution and political theory, and Dr. Arn does both. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations, dating back, my gosh, eight years now, are found at hughforhillsdale.com. Good morning, Dr. Arn. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great because it's like uh, it's like eating super vitamins to watch Supreme Court justices and would-be justices talk to the public for me. What? How much of the hearings did you watch, listen to, read? Uh, well, I've read a lot about it. Uh, I'm not such a huge TV guy. But uh, I've also been watching clips of her this morning, including one at the Kirby Center that uh, at Hillsdale College where she was interviewed. Uh, I've never met the woman, but she's been at Hillsdale College, the campus, twice, and Kirby Center once. Uh, she's just authoritative. She's just... Uh, it's not just that she recalls so much, but she explains, like she's explaining this gun rights case where she issued a dissent, and this guy had been convicted of a Medicare fraud felony, and he sued to get his gun rights back. And he didn't get them back, but she dissented, and she's explaining why. And it's just awesome. You know, she re- recalled all the facts in the case. She laid them out clearly. And then she described the method she went about deciding. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, uh, you know, what is this woman? She's, she's a charming computer. <laughs> <laughs> a computer mom. Uh, a computer mom. I, I got, we'll come back to Judge Barrett in just a second, but I wanted to, to ground your uh, assessment of her in the fact that you've been dealing with teachers for 50 years. You know, great teachers. You've had great teachers. You had Harry Jaffa as a teacher. You're a great teacher. You are surrounded by great teachers at Hillsdale College. What makes a great teacher? Because she's won the Teacher of the Year Award at Notre Dame School of Law, which is a terrific law school with an amazing faculty. And she's been awarded the Teacher of the Year at least three times by the law students who are a difficult bunch to uh, impress. What do you make of that? Uh, Well... Uh, you know, you need two things. Uh, you need to know, and you need to be able to explain. And both of those are actually acts of love. Uh, you know, to find out the details about a complicated thing and to understand the grand conception of it is not easy. It's an intellectual feat that requires energy. And to do that a lot, that means you live your life a certain way. And then after you've done all that, you get into a rare, you know, she's, Imagine her. She was a first-year law student. She talks about it some in this interview I was watching this morning. Imagine her talking to a first-year law student. She's light years beyond them, right? And yet, patiently, and, uh, you know, good teachers, by the way, watch their students while they teach. And one can tell by their faces whether they know what's going on or not, whether they agree or not, whether they're excited or not whether they're bored, which is very bad. You have to throw something at them if they're bored. Uh, so in other words, you have to care about them. You have to like them, right? So, you know, what a fine person to be all of that that she is. Well, there are different categories of like. I like to tell people in 25 years of teaching con law, 
my very best student is a fellow by the name of Tim Sandifer, who is one of yours. He came out of Hillsdale College. And Sandifer would sit up at the top of the law, you know, and of course we have auditorium style seating for con law. And Sandifer would sit up in the back row in the far left corner and he would hurl thunderbolts at me. Because law professors get details wrong. You know, we'll forget the name of a plaintiff or we'll forget the year of a case or we'll forget that $88 was charged in interstate commerce or what the price of wheat in Willard versus Filburn was. And Sandifer, doggone him, always knew and always interrupted me. So I didn't like him. But I certainly respected him as a heck of a student. So teaching law students requires not only loving them, but putting up with them. You know, I've met that boy myself three or four times, and he consumed most of all of those conversations telling me how to run the college. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he was pretty good. <laughs> well, he's running the Goldwater Institute now, and he is a very fine, best lawyer. I, I had a lot of great students. I, I'm on leave this year. I've had a lot of great law students. But I must say now about Notre Dame faculty, here's something else that's remarkable. You know law faculties, and you know faculties generally. I know law faculties. I couldn't get the Chapman Fowler School of Law faculty to agree on anything from the day we opened the door to the present. And I certainly couldn't get them to support my nomination to run anything unanimously. She has unanimous support, not one dissenter from her law school faculty. What do you think of that, Larry Arndt? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, Notre Dame is in many of its parts a very special place. And uh, that that means that they have, uh, you know, there's some agreement. You know, we, we so we have lots of kids go to top law schools. And Notre Dame, sometimes Notre Dame is not ranked in the top five. It's probably, I don't know what it is, 11. It's in the top 15. Yeah. And. You know, we have kids sometimes who get into the top five who choose to go to Notre Dame because there are professors like her there. And uh, you know how I think about the law. Most of it's not controversial and boring. But uh, but where it is, you know, there's a like the, this original intent theory. That's a debate about the meaning of a document. And it means it's a debate about the meaning of every document. The Bible you know, the Constitution of the United States, any import, any book, Plato's Republic, right? And so the law leads you up very high. And, and so, you know, it's hard to pick a law school today, by the way, where there's a lot of people who can do that. But at Notre Dame, there are a few. And she's there are a few. The there are a few. I mean, she is remarkable. Now, there is coming upon the country a debate. If Joe Biden wins this election, appears like he will. We don't know that, but appears like he will. That the Democratic Party has within it a movement to expand the Supreme Court, to pack the Supreme Court. There's an Orwellian assault on the language. To pack the Supreme Court means to add seats. And there is an attempt to change the rule of law by adding judges. How dangerous is that movement, Dr. Arn, in your view? Well, very. Um so the, the thing about the Constitution is, you know, that, that word Constitution comes from a, a Latin word that means to set something up firmly in place. Uh, it's cognate with the word for statue, for, you know, put up, put up, you know, we've been toppling statues lately. That's like toppling the Constitution. And it's, the Constitution is made to be hard to change. And so uh, the spirit of the age is to exploit all the loopholes in the Constitution, and there is a loophole about this, the number of justices is not named in the Constitution. 
is to exploit those loopholes in order to get a result. And, you know, and remember, this is to get a result legally, that is, by, by a process that's not directly accountable to the people. And so that's just very, the, the, the spirit behind that, I mean, you know, we maybe we're about to get a couple of new states, and we're changing voting laws all over the place. And those disturb the electoral system, which is the heart of the whole matter. The only means the American people have to control their government is through the electoral system. And the point is, there's a lot of people who don't want the government controlled. They want it to run and run over anything that stands in its way. And that's the great tendency of the age, right? The government is bigger and stronger and more intrusive than it has ever been, and it will probably be more so tomorrow. I, I want to ask before the break, um, you have had a number of Hillsdale students go to law school despite your, your uh, assaults upon the integrity of our profession and, and, our, <laughs> and our value, and they have gone on to become clerks to judges and some of them on the Supreme Court. Haven't you got a few Supreme Court clerks among your alums? Uh, seven, I think, yeah. Seven? Yeah, yeah, quite a few. Quite a they're, few. You know, they're all show ponies, and they're, uh, they're you know, we, we've got a lot of kids that have clerked for important appellate justices. Will, will they do what you ask them to do? Uh, well, first of all, I don't know enough to ask them to do I have a, I have a request for you to put to them, which I'll tell you after the break. Okay. Uh, just to put them to all of them to ask them to answer a question, because I have a new inquiry and I have been looking and I can't find that anyone's ever considered it. I think I know the answer, but I would like to have their input. And I know okay. that they're Hillsdale. Students. When we come back, don't go anywhere, America, except to the Hillsdale dot edu. Get everything Hillsdale, including your application. They're overwhelmed with application because they're actually doing college in Hillsdale, Michigan. Where John James might be their next senator. I'll talk with Dr. Larry Arn about that and about Amy Coney Barrett and about severability and about the Democratic senator's conduct this week as we carry on with the Hillsdale Dialogue in a very special week here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining the Hugh Hewitt Show during the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things important are discussed on the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn this week, president of Hillsdale College. As we were talking in the last hour, uh, doctor, last segment, Dr. Arn has got a number of former Supreme Court clerks among his alum and many federal court clerks among his alum. And I have a question for them. The last time the Supreme Court changed its composition was in 1869, the Judiciary Act of 1869, which followed the convulsions of the Supreme Court and the machinations of the Reconstruction radical Republicans. The original Supreme Court had six, and it bounced around a little bit for a few decades, but then in 1869, they settled on nine. Now, the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, and the court was changed in 1869. So it would appear at first glance that changing the Supreme Court number of seats is constitutional. But we've come to understand the 14th Amendment in a profoundly different way is guaranteeing both procedural and substantive due process. Might you ask your clerks, your really smart legal people, whether or not changing the justices number now might, in fact, breach the spirit of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees due process of law to every American? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I will say, as a, the honor to be a layman, that uh, th that is what this is about, right? This, this attempt to pack the court is about substantive things. It's, it's about uh, procedural things, sure enough, but 
they touch substantive things, for example, and in the end they touch the rule of law. Can the government, is the government restrained by the Constitution? It is certainly greatly empowered by the Constitution, but it is also restrained in many places, and it's the restraints that are breaking down. The powers are growing. Yeah, and, and I know the arguments in favor of the court flexibility because they changed it repeatedly up through the end of the Civil War, and it changed after the 14th Amendment was adopted. But the 14th Amendment changed things significantly in the United States, and out of that amendment have come rights of privacy. Uh, a variety of, of issues have been resolved, for example, same-sex marriage under the rubric of the 14th Amendment. I just believe people have to consider whether or not it breaches fundamental freedom in America to make the Supreme Court a slinky. Because if that happens once, it will happen twice, three, four, five times. We will no longer be a republic of laws. It'll be like the Roman Revolution. It will take a long time to have its effect, but it would be disastrous, Larry Arn. We have the optimistic view is that it'll take a long time. Um, it, uh, just think about this, too. This, uh, I have often compared the last 10 years in American politics to the 1850s. And that trauma of the Civil War and that deep division in the country is the occasion of the la- uh, really what became the settled side, size of the Supreme Court. Well, now we've got this division is deep, and we may be about to abandon that settlement. You know, I think they're really afraid, Dr. Arn, after listening to Judge Barrett all week, not that she'll be a bad justice, but that she'll be a very good one and will persuade Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, Roberts, Alito, and Thomas. And I believe Kagan will join them now. I believe you'll have a lot of 7-2 cases and maybe 8-1 cases. I don't know that Justice Sotomayor is going to abandon her position now on the left edge of the court. But I think she's going to have a mighty influence in taking the court out of public debates, which will be a good thing. Oh, yeah. And uh, that you see, if you just watch her demeanor and listen to her answers... She's masterful in explaining what the limits are. And, you know, the the mighty power of the Supreme Court has just two parts. And one part is, any case that gets to it, it's always a dispute between parties. And that case is settled for good and all, right? Uh, uh, Lincoln's reaction to the terrible Dred Scott decision, which, to remind the listeners, was a decision by Roger Taney that the uh, very split, split about five ways, uh, that the federal government has no power to restrict slavery in the federal territories, which was the heart of the Republican platform. And so it looked like it destroyed the Republican Party. And so Lincoln's reaction to that was, the first effect of that case is that poor Dred Scott, who had sued for his freedom, is a slave, and nothing can change that. And the second is, now we're going to have a debate. And, and, and- uh, that's, you know, so that's... But the power, the, the decision of the Supreme Court affects that debate powerfully. We come back. We'll talk more about the court and Judge Barrett on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Mm-hmm. Hugh Hewitt. Larry Orrin is my guest. He's president of Hillsdale College. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All of them are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. We've been doing this for many, many years. All of the many courses for Hillsdale online are at Hillsdale.edu. As are applications for those, it is the time to apply for college next year. I neglected to ask Dr. Arn at the beginning of this hour, how goes college in Michigan in 2020 in October? Well, uh, there are two answers to that. One is it goes great. Uh, the other is overnight there was a blanket 
massive detailed order by the Michigan Department of Health that will probably it's, it's, it, it takes 30 minutes to read it, so I don't know what it says exactly. But it's sweeping, and so they're going to change our operations in various ways, I imagine. And, uh, you know, I, I, I dispute the good of all of that. But we're having college, and we're having it in a good spirit, and people obey the rules. And, and uh, the kids, as a rule, young people are not nervous about this disease and ought not to be, in my opinion. But uh, some older people are, and some older people ought to be. And so the big thing is to protect them. And so we uh, obey the rules, and then we also go beyond the rules where we think it's necessary because people are particularly vulnerable. Now, you are not partisan, and, and you do not run and do not have political opinions, but Michigan is in the middle of a very interesting Senate battle involving a fellow by the name of John James, with whom I know you met two years ago. And John James is tied with Gary Peters, and nobody knows about him. He's African-American West Point graduate from Detroit. Very few people outside of Michigan know about him. What do you think about him, and has he been to the campus this fall? Uh, he's not been to the campus this fall. Uh, I think the college Republicans uh, made a sortie to get him to come, but I think it didn't work out. Uh, I have met him, and, and uh, I admire him very much. I uh, uh, my favorite story about him was that I offended him one time because he was running for the Senate last time out of nowhere. And I said, you know, a lot of times people uh, run for a big office like that to get their name around, and then they can run for a smaller office and win. And he just looked at me and said, so you're saying I'm running a false campaign. Huh. <laughs> he just launched on me. And I said, okay, I surrender the point. Apparently, you're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. West Point helicopter pilot, you really do not want to get into a fight with him. Uh, but it, it, it's interesting to me. I think that vote may be a referendum on the governor's conduct. I know you joined me in condemning the plot against her and of all violence against all people of public position and, and indeed private position. I know you do that. Mm. But I am curious if you think there is a referendum to be had on how she has conducted herself, a peaceful referendum via the John James race. Well, I, you know, I, uh, every, right now, everything is controversial. You said it looks like Biden will win. I don't, I don't know what it looks like myself. I don't, I don't have any idea. Uh, but uh, it looks like, for the same reason, that the things that she's done are popular, and she apparently thinks so. I don't know, but she's, she keeps doing it. Uh, and I think I, but it's also demonstrable that there's a huge opposition to that. And, and, you know, people, isn't there bound to be people are losing their businesses and, uh, and, you know, now, now they're, you know, regulated in detail, uh, about how to behave in a business and it makes it less attractive to go out in public. And I think that's part of the purpose but if people don't go into public, uh, go out in public, then the economic activity subsides. And anyway, it's not good for people not to go out in public. You know, the great fact about this pandemic is that suicides are up a lot. You know, tens of thousands. And uh, uh, the, the head, my favorite thing is the head of the CDC, the guy that Anthony Fauci reports to, sort of. Uh, uh, said that there were more extra suicides in the month of July in America than there were COVID deaths. And I had uh, Dr. Bhattacharya say to me on Friday night, uh, 
that it looks like, and he hasn't asserted this as a fact yet, but they're studying it, that there are going to be 130 million people starve in the third world because of this economic collapse. And so we don't count the cost, but the people who bear the, the cost, you know, we count the advantages, if there are any, to these shutdowns, but the costs are measured in lost businesses, lost opportunities for life, and maybe even starvation. And the people who are bearing those costs are bound to be unhappy. The WHO has now joined the position that a lot of conservatives have, that the lockdowns are ill-advised. The WHO has said the lockdown costs exceed their benefits as a second wave sweeps through Europe. As we looked at the Senate Judiciary Committee this week, we saw Tom Tillis, who has recovered from the virus, and Mike Lee, who has recovered from the virus, and Judge Amy Coney Barrett, who has recovered from the virus. President Trump was in Iowa this week. He's in Florida this week, Pennsylvania this week. He has recovered from the virus. He's 70 five years old and, and a big man. He's, he, he, I don't think he's morbidly obese, but he's a big man. And, and he's in the age range where you have to be careful. There may be a message coming out of this, and, and I pray God no one we know in the White House dies from this, but there are sure a lot of people getting better from it. Yeah. And, you know, another thing is, if you go in the White House every day, you get tested for the virus. Well, I, I, probably the employees are not tested every day. But every time you know, I was in there on subsequent weeks, and I was tested twice for the virus, disappointed to find that I didn't have it. And, and uh, you know, because I think it'd be kind of cool. <laughs> and, and Believe me, when t- Mike Lee told me he felt like a 98-year-old man in a boxing match, I, I changed my opinion of wanting to have a mild case. He had a mild case. He still said it felt awful. I don't like the flu. I don't like getting sick at all, so I don't want to get really sick. Yeah. Well, you know, I had the... Uh, Head of the Black Caucus in the uh, in the Michigan Senate, along with the leader of the Senate here yesterday, uh, and he's a great guy. He's he's a left wing Democrat, but he's a great guy. And he said lots of people in his district. He said he'd lost forty three people who were not in the age group, and and that's you know. And he and I said, uh, you know, statistics don't say that. Wonder why? And he said. Poverty, lack of health care. Well, the point is, that's terrible, right? And that's a cost, and you have to recognize the cost, and you have to do what you can about it, but not at the cost of more deaths of other kinds. That, that's, that is uh, the co- counting and weighing the balance is everything, and we're working with imperfect knowledge, which brings me back to the hearings. The Democrats used the hearings this week not to suggest that Judge Barrett was other than qualified. That would have been impossible. But to talk about the American, uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, endlessly. They never got around to what's happened to premiums. They never got around. They they had a lot of people who've been helped by the act, but they didn't cut the cost of the act. And it it just seems to me that we're, we're stuck in this rut where we won't weigh anything according to the genuine weight of the pros and the cons. Yeah. If you just step back from the partisanship of all this and and just think, if a company is run every day according to the emergency of the day, if a college, if if a a radio station or a radio show, then they can have no plan, right? They They can't act consistently over time. And so figuring out this healthcare thing, there's a lot of risk in it for people. Uh, and it's expensive, 
And, you know, my own opinion is that the government is what makes it so expensive because, uh, you know, it's just the government is everywhere in health care. And, and the idea that not having the Affordable Care Act uh, will establish a free market in health care, that's not true. Although a lot of things have been done in the last four years to loosen it up. Like we have a direct primary, you know, see, isn't this boring? I'm going into all this, right? No, it's not. It's, it's fascinating because you have to run something. Yes. Most people on this show don't have to run anything. Yeah. Well, we have, we have a direct primary care experiment going, and that's a thing where uh, you, you basically have some doctors who take care of your people, and they're available all the time, and they look at them every year. And if they need something, they can call them on the phone or text them or, or email them, and they can do remote diagnosis, and it's very available. You know, I, I get physicals at the Cleveland Clinic, and I've not done it, but uh, I have a number I can call and talk to a doctor right then. And, uh, and so that kind of thing, right, that's, there's more opening for that now because there have been relaxation of the rules in the Department of Health and Human Services in the Trump administration. Well, this idea that it's all got to be one size fits all, so we don't leave any single person out, that's what drives the debate. And when people hear that, they hear, I'm going to be the one left out. Well, we shouldn't leave people out, but we should have <clears throat> ways to include them that doesn't harm everybody. Right. And there are such ways, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the things we do in, in relief for the needy are not the efficient way to do it. And, you know, the more efficient way in general is just give them money. Right. And uh, but in healthcare, what I think you would do is you would uh, provide everybody a catastrophic health care plan and, and and, you know, put money into an insurance for them. And then, in addition, help them because, you know, if they're on poor relief, then they can have help for their medical expenses, too. And if you just went at it that way, uh, then the health care system would operate as normally, and people would show up with that kind of insurance. And that, by the way, is the discussion that Larry Arn and I have often on policy, which is something that we can continue after the break, but it's not a matter of judicial review. That's why this week's hearings were so odd, and we'll conclude in the next segment about why they were so odd with Dr. Larry Arnold. Hillsdale.edu is where you go. Welcome back, America. The conclusion of an important week in American uh, law, because Amy Coney Barrett is going to the Supreme Court, and uh, the president was on last night, and Joe Biden was on last night, and you've been hearing the president this morning. And, and I just want to go back to the first principle of this week. This week is not important because of what Joe Biden said on Thursday night or Donald Trump said on Thursday night, because of what Amy Coney Barrett said throughout the week. She's going to be on the court for a long time if she's blessed with good health, and I hope she is. And I think she will bring, hopefully, a return, Dr. Arn, to the first principle that courts don't do policy. That's not their job. And I think that came through perhaps at the most glaring difference between the Republicans, who often some of whom were just dazzlingly smart, like Cruz and Hawley and Sass, and the Democrats, some of whom I will not mention, appeared to be as dumb as a brick. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something. Well, co- contrast them with her. Right. First of all, she's she's two things. And together, they're components of a good human being. She has a sweeping, masterful understanding of the law, 
you know, that thing about not having any notes on her paper. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That was so good. And, uh, and, and you know, you, you can tell when she was a kid, she was just that kind of girl, right? You, you get him in class. He's like Sandifer, about whom you complain and admire. Yes. Uh, darned if she doesn't just show up knowing everything, yep. right? So she's like that. But then she combines with that a wonderful sense of discipline. She knows what her job is. She's not a megalomaniac, right? She doesn't think she gets to run everything. She thinks, I've got a job here. And I think, then, that her head will not be turned by being on the Supreme Court, whereas some are, you know, and they decide that they want to embody the meaning of the people, to use a phrase from, I think, Brennan, and, and uh, you know, the meaning of the nation. I don't think she's going to do that. And I, I don't think, think she would have joined the opinion in Casey, uh, jointly issued by Judges Souter, Justices Souter, O'Connor, and Kennedy, which spoke to the meaning of the universe. Yeah. That's not their job. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And she and you know, she has definite opinions about the meaning of the universe and she gets them like as far as I understand her from her faith and from philosophy. But of course if you get them from there, they teach you humility alongside that. <laughs> you know, it, uh, and they teach you respect for civil authority. Yeah, that's right. You know, it was was great. The good news, I want to make sure we include this. The the Democrats did not get near to her religious faith like they did in 2017. There was none of that. And I am complimenting them for changing their approach. They left it alone as Article 6 of the Constitution guarantees that it must be left alone because religious tests disturbed England and thus the United States before it was the United States badly for many years. And it was not present this week. That was a victory, Dr. Arndt. Yeah, may that trend continue, too, because... You know, the way things are going right now, um, religious liberty is is either is or is not going to give people some exemption from some of these intrusive laws so they can carry on their lives. And if it doesn't, then religion is going to be oppressed. Religion is oppressed right now. Our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom are out there every day uh, on the front line protecting things that are based upon the free exercise clause. I think she knows that clause well. I look for great things from this court. I, the, the infusion, Donald Trump, it is dispositive to never Trumpers, Dr. And last word to you on this. Those who opposed Donald Trump three years ago, uh, now they have to contend with Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, who would have been replaced by judges nominated, justices nominated by Hillary Clinton. There are no two more obviously different trajectories than how the court would have traveled under a President Clinton than it has traveled under a President Trump. Well, true enough. And, you know, if, if, if Biden wins and they do the worst things that they say they intend, then a lot of people are going to blame Donald Trump for that. <laughs> because it would have never happened if he hadn't. But the truth of the matter is, what would Hillary Clinton have been like? I like to say to people, I do not mistake Donald Trump for... Uh, Winston Churchill, and also I do not mistake him for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not the same. And I, you know, this great struggle that's going on, this election, and the intense divisiveness of it—that just means, you know, the famous phrase: fundamental things are afoot here in the country. That is a famous phrase, first uttered by Dr. Arm many years ago, before Donald Trump was elected, and fundamental things are afoot, and they were afoot this week. I just think that this chapter went well for freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she's, 
you know, God bless that woman. You know, I mean, isn't she just a splendid human being? And, you know, her, her family, which has been made controversial sometimes, she's got a whack and passel of kids. And uh, one of them's got Down syndrome. You know, we have a couple of families here on our faculty that are raising Down syndrome babies, right? And I just admire deeply, you know, because they love to do it. Because apparently the kids are just wonderfully sweet. And, I've uh, never, I've never known the parent of a child with Down syndrome who did not love that child, and who would say, as Judge Connie Barrett did, that the siblings love that child unqualifiedly and yeah. with just a great amount of love. They are. Uh, it, it never seems that way at the beginning, and then it just becomes that way. Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, when we next speak, perhaps Judge Barrett will be Justice Barrett. might take two weeks, but we'll see. Thank you, America, for listening this most consequential week. Thank you, Dwayne and Adam. Thank you, Harley and Ben. Come back. I'll be here on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.